Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. I trust that you're keeping well and taking advantage of some of the spare time we now all have to listen to a Stages episode or two. We've managed to keep busy during this time and have enlisted the wonders of an array of technology to continue recording conversations locally and afar. I thought I'd just mention that in case you wondered why suddenly the conversations sound like they may have been recorded via satellite. Overall, I think they've sounded pretty good and wanted to give a shout out to Zoom and Clean Feed Technology for allowing us to keep in touch. And now, here's the current episode. Barry Creighton could quite easily be labelled a Renaissance man. He is certainly a consummate man of the theatre, accomplished in many roles. He is also a pioneer of review and satirical comedy in Australia, as one of the writer-performers of the iconic television series The Mavis Bramston Show. His career has taken him around the world, working in a variety of guises in Australia, the United Kingdom and the USA. He has written screenplays, novels and countless theatre fare, reviews, plays and adaptations. Following a motorcycle accident, he spent time recovering in hospital and writing a play that would prove to be a triumph in an extensive tour that paired Creighton with his great friend and comic contemporary, Nolene Brown. The play, Double Act, is still performed today and has been given productions in a host of international cities. Creighton and Brown were among the first to release comic records in Australia, the front and back flip side of Barry Creighton and Nolene Brown, and the not-so-wet and dry side of Barry Creighton and Nolene Brown, demonstrated a seductive sophistication and stark observation of the culture and relationships between the sexes. In Australia, he might also be recognised as the urbane panellist from the subversive game show Blankety Blanks, the genius stage director of the musical comedy Nonsense, or the hysterical farceur in the riotous Noises Off. A vast repertoire of villains, sophisticates and clowns contributes to audiences' adoration of Creighton in stage and screen roles. Creighton serves the roles of actor, director and writer with tremendous ease and extensive knowledge and immense charm. To be in his company is a treasured joy. He is generous, warm, witty and ready with a mountain of anecdotes that delight, inform and endlessly entertain. A considerable amount of world dissension is caused by a deplorable lack of communication which we feel could be remedied by togetherness, togetherness, there should be more togetherness, warm and cosy, the world's made rosy by togetherness. I'd like to say, 44 bob, too much to pay. If I recover after I'm ill, I'll die of shock when I get the bill. Togetherness, togetherness, there should be more togetherness. Warm and cosy, the world's made rosy by togetherness. Moses, retirement calls, but you holler down the halls. The ABU has rescued me, so sayonara and the ABC. Togetherness, togetherness, there should be more togetherness. Warm 
warm and cozy, the world's made rosy by togetherness. Sir Robert Menzies, car's been sold to a beekeeper, so we're told. Well, that old car should run with ease. It's not the first time she's carried bees. Good. Well, we certainly require more to- togetherness in the current climate, don't we? <laughs> How are you managing to amuse yourself in LA? Well, by not uh, employing togetherness, obviously. Um, it's extraordinary that song survives after so many years. You know, I wrote that for, um, I wrote the music for that for a review for the Philip Theatre. I think it was called Do You Mind? And they appropriated it for Bramston, and it was there every week the, of the show. And everyone sort of remembers it. It's it's really extraordinary. Oh, terrific! I, I thought that it was actually written for Bramston, but it had a life before then. Yeah, it did. Yeah. Now, Barry, I wanted to have wanted to do this conversation. You've been on my wish list since day one. So um, geography has always kept <laughs> us apart. Uh, we haven't seen yes. each other for a couple of years. Uh, so it's quite bizarre that this COVID nineteen has brought us together remotely via yeah. technology. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're very much a Renaissance man of the theatre, adept in many roles. Do you have a favourite? I really don't. You know, I love I love just about everything to do with theatre. It's been my life for as long as I can remember, um, against great opposition, I might add, in my childhood. But uh, theatre's always been my principal love in any form. Um, I think probably there's an acting gene, you know, from my great-grandfather and my grandfather... Certainly not my father and my mother, because the, the genes skipped that generation entirely. Um, but there was something in it that, in me that wanted me to be in theatre from the very first moment uh, I walked into an empty theatre. I noticed that in your intro to Simon Burke's um, interview, which I haven't listened to yet, it just popped up on Facebook just before you called. And I note that he said um, uh, that he, the first time he went into an empty theatre, he thought, this is for me. Exactly the same thing happened to me when I was about 10 or 11 years old. You find your calling, it's, a, it's your temple, isn't it? It's sort of... Um, yeah. Something speaks to you and you have to do it. Yes, yeah. Look, we'll aim for a, a, a chronological conversation, but I fear that we're going to traverse all over the place so, and crisscross throughout, so we'll do our best. I want to yeah. start with um, an excerpt from Shakespeare's The Tempest. This is Prospero's last speech. Oh, yeah. My aerial chick, that is thy charge. Then, to the elements be free, and fare thou well. Please you, draw near.
Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be here confined by you or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell, but release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. That's a job recording Shakespeare's plays that you completed in recent years, isn't it? It is. Um, it happened by accident. I, a very famous radio producer here, or audio producer, called Yuri Rosovsky, um, called me one day. He knew the work I'd done for the Antios Theatre in Los Angeles here. And he knew he was dying. He had cancer. And he wanted someone to take over the audio productions that he had uh, access to and he was doing frequently. And he thought I was the guy to do it. And we talked a great deal about this. And he said, let me show you the route, because I started in radio when I was in my teens, so I understood the medium very well. Um, he said, let me show you the ropes first. So he was directing and producing a very lavish audio production of a spoof on Snow White called Die Snow White, um, with a stellar cast, uh, Kate Burton, um, uh, who else was in it? Sandra Oh, who's in Killing Eve. Uh, it was a really wonderful cast. And he asked me if I'd play in it. I played the stupid duke to Kate Burton's uh, evil duchess. And um, then he said, now, follow me as I go through all of the post-production on it. So the following week, we were due to go into... This is a cast of about 20, I might add, in a studio equipped with six small booths. So we were recording six tracks all the time. And um, we went into a, I went into a Foley studio expecting to meet him at the crack of dawn uh, the following week. No sign of Yuri. Then we had a frantic call from his wife to say that he'd been stricken. He was taken off to hospital and they didn't expect him to live. And I, was, meanwhile, was in a Foley studio with two people waiting around to walk on pebbles and knock on doors and do all of that. And I'm in the booth. So I spent two days doing the Foley on that, then went to Oregon, where the company was situated, and did a week on post-production and integrated the score and put the whole thing together. And it was a big success. After that, they suddenly thought that I was uh, the one to direct all of the Shakespeare's that the Oregon Shakespeare Festival were doing. And these turned out to be... I don't know why Shakespeare suddenly popped up in my life, because it was never an integral part prior to this. And um, I did, I think, maybe three productions for them, very lavish productions. Um, I wanted them to sound like movies without the picture. Uh, so we had a cast of about 20 for each, six-track recording. Um, they did the voices cold, and then I would go back to L.A. and 
integrate the music score, which I had to find myself, and also the sound effects and the foley, then I'd spend about two months of my, in my, on my own equipment putting that together, send the roughs to Oregon, and then I'd go back to Oregon for a week and we'd do the final edit on it and pan it for stereo. And these became very successful. Um, they were reviewed, in fact, by one reviewer saying it sounds like, the, particularly the King Lear I did, it sounded like a movie without the pictures. And I was very proud of The Tempest I did. It's a play I've always loved. And I thought the actor who, who played uh, Prospero was wonderful, um, a New York actor. And the final scene, I think, that he did was very moving and very sweet. Well, I believe The Tempest is Shakespeare's final play, too. I think he wrote it during the plague, didn't he? Well, how apt are we talking about it? <laughs> I've got an excerpt from Di- uh, Die Snow White, Barry, with Kate Burton. Kate was oh, uh, yeah. Richard's daughter, wasn't he? She was, and she? I've known her socially. She, I've known her for uh, uh, socially for quite some time, and we'd never worked together until this day, and we had great fun. And I see her occasionally here because she lives most of her life in LA these days. Uh, but a very wonderful woman and a great actress. The name came from her low-born mother. She was a miller's daughter, you know. In her peasant dialect, the name means Snow White. You wed a peasant drudge? Whatever for? Let us say I admired her craft at the loom. She must have exhibited an extraordinary gift. She wove straw into gold. A right useful talent, forsooth. Alas, the ability waned when she grew heavy with child. Pregnancy often genders other evils besides children. Did she at least make up for it by giving me a son? No. Gretchen spawned Schneewittchen, a female, another mouth to feed, an eventual dowry to bestow. But you will bear a strapping, sons, is it not so? Marry your grace. Let us pursue this question in a more conducive setting. Whatever you wish, my boy-begetting beauty. Perchance the bedchamber? Oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> will please your grace take our arm? With pleasure, your grace. What became of your last duchess, Your Grace? Alas, Your Grace, she expired. Expired? And so young. How, pray, did the poor wretch meet her end? With a great deal of screaming and scratching. The peasant. Quite so. Now, your great-grandfather was a Shakespearean actor, wasn't he? He was. He was a very celebrated Shakespearean actor with the Samuel Phelps Company in Sadler's Wells in London, mid-19th century. And he was a tutor to the teenage Henry Irving. In fact, uh, in Irving's autobiography, he plays very warm tribute to my great-grandfather. This was something I had that I didn't know anything about until about um, ten years ago when a historian popped up and told me all of this. Wow. This was the result of my parents' total lack of interest in theatre or anything to do with it, in spite of the fact that my father's grandfather and his father had been well-known actors. I never knew anything about this. But it was a a joy to discover that I had this gene somewhere back in the background. And I was in London um, last June and went to Sadler's Wells to see a ballet and looked at the old posters in Sadler's Wells Theatre that they've got framed. And there was one from 1854 with my great-grandfather's name on it playing Osric in Hamlet. I was very pleased to see that. Um, he, my grandfather, uh, his name was William Hoskins, by the way. My grandfather, the historian wondered whether he was adopted or whether he was the result of uh, a liaison between my great-grandfather and an actress in his company. Um, 
this was in New Zealand. He'd, uh, Hoskins had emigrated there to become a, uh, an actor manager and became very well known there. And I think, we tend to think that my grandfather was illegitimate and was born, you know, of this actress in the company. And my grandfather trained him as an actor. And once he began to, be, to uh, gain a reputation, he realized he was living in the shadow of my great-grandfather, who was quite a name. So he changed his name to Paul Creighton. And this became an issue throughout the family, and finally they changed the name officially to Creighton. That's how that name happened. Do you know how he chose the name Creighton? I think it was the name of a pulp fiction author in America at the time. There's only one other Paul Creighton that I can find anywhere in the world that's spelled this way, and they all seem to be related to this author. Um, I think it was, even for him it was a, a, a made-up name, but um, a total invention of my grandfather's, though. Anyway, he, he moved to Sydney and then to Brisbane, where he did a lot of plays um, at the old Theatre Royal there, then had his own company and then gave it all up uh, um, when he was about 40 to become a trade unionist. My grandmother, who was an actress who was 20 years his junior, he, he married way back then. I was devoted to them. Um, never saw enough of them, thanks to my curious mother. <laughs> Let's, we'll talk about her shortly. Um, had, shortly is better than shortly is better than longly, believe me. <laughs> um, had you performed much Shakespeare in your career? I did a little when I was starting out in Brisbane. I, I did a what did I do? A Bushy and Richard the Second. I did uh, Malvolio, which I loved doing. I did um, Stefano in The Tempest. Um, that's about it. Well, I've got an excerpt here from uh, LA Theatre Works' production of uh, As You Like It, in which you ah, perform yes. with the great Stacey Keach. I adapted this production. This is when, I, when LA Theatre Works, which is a very prestigious company, got wind of the Shakespeare's I'd done for the audio company in Oregon, and they said, come and adapt some Shakespeare's... Well, it, you know, again, I was up to my ass in Shakespeare. And um, I adapted this one and cast it, and Stacey Keach, the wonderful legendary Stacey Keach played Jaquies. And the reason I got to do that with him is on the... These were... I should explain how these audio productions were done. Unlike the studio recordings that I did of Shakespeare, uh, these were rehearsed for a couple of weeks, then played to a live audience in a theatre for five performances and a matinee. And um, then the five performances were recorded, the best bits taken out, put together, and they, they sell very, very well as audio, uh, audio discs. So they asked me uh, to adapt and direct the As You Like It, and the act of playing both dukes, which is a tradition, you know, both the evil duke and the, the good duke are both often played by the same actor, came to us on the Thursday night performance and said, oh, and I won't be able to make the Saturday matinee. I have a film and I'll be shooting on Saturday. And all eyes turned to me, Suddenly I found I was playing both Dukes at the Saturday matinee. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that's the, re that the recording that you have as a result of that. In case you can't tell the difference, I'm playing the good Duke in this part. Yeah, we can hear your smile. <laughs> <laughs> Invest me in my motley. Give me leave to speak my mind. And I will through and through cleanse the foul body of the infected world. If they will patiently receive my medicine. Fie on thee. I can tell what thou wouldst do. What? For a counter would I do but good? Most mischievous foul sin and chiding sin. 
For thou thyself hast been a libertine, as sensual as the brutish sting itself, and all the embossed sores and hidden evils that thou with license of free foot hast caught, wouldst thou disgorge into the general world. Why, who cries out on pride that can therein tax any private party? But who comes here? Forbear, and eat no more. Why, I have eaten none yet. Nor shalt not till necessity be served. Of what kind should this cock come of? Art thou thus bold and man by thy distress? Or else a rude despiser of good manners. <laughs> but in civility thou seems so empty. So, Barry, you were born in Brisbane. Was it a childhood of sun, sand and surf? No, it wasn't at all. I, it, I don't think it was the happiest childhood. I try not to dwell on it. My, my mother was, had curious psychological problems. She, um, she did her best in some way. I never figured this out why. She was a very bitter woman for some reason. She did her best to instill as much inferiority in me and my brother as she possibly could. And it worked. I mean, the, the inferiority and the shyness that she managed to thrash into me lasted until I would say I was in my early 30s. Um, all of the bluster I did during the Bramston years and anything I did on stage in those years was a way of escaping that shyness. Um, she did her level best, quite practically, to prevent me from going into theatre, mainly because I liked it. That's the only reason I can think of. Uh, we, were not, we were not desperately poor, but we were certainly not rich. We were a very poor family. My father painted cars for a living. My mother, I don't think, read a book in her entire life. And I was constantly begging them as a small kid for books, which they thought was very strange. Um, when I was 18, I auditioned for the first year of NIDA, and a couple of my friends were accepted. Off they went to Sydney. And I didn't hear a word, and I thought, for all the theatre work I'd done to that date, all the radio work I was doing in Brisbane at the time, I must have been pretty awful. A year later, my mother revealed that she'd had a letter from them offering a scholarship, and she'd turned it down on my behalf. And that was the point at which I left home. <laughs> wow, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Yes, it is extraordinary. Um, it, I became, I think, I think, more determined and more ambitious as a result of that, which, you know, worked... Uh, in the opposite direction of which my mother was aiming. Um, it, was, uh, it was very curious wanting to go into theatre with two parents who had no idea what it, what it was. Um, my mother, I don't think, ever had any clue in her life what made a curtain go up and down in a theatre. And my father's view of theatre was when I was, oh God, about 9, 10, 11 years old, they were doing burlesque shows at the old Theatre Royal, um, George Wallace Jr. and his nudie cuties. So I had a very firm view of theatre at that young age that theatre consisted entirely of tits and feathers. Yeah. Um, it took a lot... <laughs> well, a lot to grow. I suppose it is, yes. And I've been there myself. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, when I was in last years of primary school, I started washing cars at a used car lot on Saturday mornings to earn enough money to go to the matinees of His Majesty's Theatre, which was J.C. Williamson's domain at that time. So I got to see Googie Withers uh, in Deep Blue Sea. I got to see Judith Anderson in Madeira. A lot of really great, great people. And that was So another. these are your, your first theatre experiences? Yeah, uh-huh. Um, there was no way I thought of becoming an actor, even though it was clearly what I wanted to do. I remember my grandmother on the 
times I used to visit my grandfather, when my grandfather was alive, um, he was the one who walked me into an empty theatre when I was about 12 years old, I think. He was about 98 at the time and still very hale and very hearty. And he pointed out every aspect of the theatre. I, I was open-jawed. I loved it so much. He showed me the wings, the flies, explained how everything worked. And to stand on a stage and look at an empty theatre has been a thrill that I still experience, I think, when yeah. I go into a theatre for a, a tech rehearsal, as Simon said in, that, in his interview. Um, my grandmother, when I, I loved visiting them because they had recordings of shows from the 20s on old 78s and a wind-up gramophone, and of course that intrigued me at, at 10, 11, 12 years old. And once I got sick of that, I remember she'd grab me an old play script from the shelves and uh, we'd sit on the front porch of the house and we'd read from it. And I remember my first experience of playing anything, I think, was uh, doing Professor Higgins to her Eliza on the front porch of uh, us. I think I was that, was the ex- that was the experience of a lot of boys, I think. I guess, yeah. Who went, yeah. went into musical theatre. Yeah. <laughs> Did your grandparents have a good relationship with your parents? My mother had, did not have a good relationship with anybody, and that was the determining factor, not the other way around. Yeah. My, uh, I loved my, my paternal grandparents greatly. I, I was devoted to them and never got to see enough of them. My grandfather, in, way back in his acting days, played the villain in East Lynn, which is, of course, the first big thing I did when I hit Sydney in 1961 um, at the Music Hall Theatre for George Miller. And I so regret never flying my grandmother, who was just alive at that time, down to see the show because she would have adored it. Mm. What was your exposure to arts like at school? Did, did you play an instrument within school plays, <laughs> productions? Did I play an instrument well? I was desperate to learn the piano when I was a kid, and, my, of course, my family pleaded poverty. And my father got me the second best, he thought, which was a piano accordion. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> now don't laugh I remember somebody said to me it was the, God, the musical director on Nonsense years later knowing how to play the piano accordion and choosing not to is the measure of good taste <laughs> and <laughs> nevertheless I started learning when I was 10 by the time I was 11 I was playing it on a children's radio show just about every other week in Brisbane and that access to music served me well uh, I realised very early on that ha- once having heard a passage of any kind of music, I could repeat it, I could play it. And that moved me into composing music for review you know, later on in the early 60s. Um, there was no theatre at my school when I was a kid. Uh, you know, imagine Brisbane uh, in the 50s, if you possibly can. Um, it was not a place that was devoted to the arts in any way. Um, I remember a teacher of mine in geography when I was about 11 years old starting out a lesson by saying, Brisbane, like Rome, is built on seven hills. And even then I thought to myself, surely there the similarity ends. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. (laughs) But they did have three three terrific amateur theatre companies in Brisbane at that time. And... When I was 17, I've got to go back a bit and say I dropped out of school when I was 15 because I felt I was not learning anything. I um, 
uh, the six-week break over Christmas, you know, they'd give you all of the textbooks for the following year. Well, by the time I got to school for the following year, I'd, I'd read them all. Mm-hmm. And the, the year consisted of just a slot of going through stuff that I'd already assimilated. So at 15, um, my mother, I thought, would slaughter me. Um, I dropped out of school, took a menial job, and spent my nights in the Brisbane Public Library reading things I wanted to read and getting to know all about things I wanted to know. I think I read practically all of uh, Freud's introduction to psychoanalysis before I was 17 years old. Wow. Uh, which served me well when I wrote Double Act, because there's a lot of Freud in that. Yeah. <laughs> so you b- begin your professional career at 17. I-, I guess you really do need to leave Brisbane and, and head towards Melbourne or Sydney to, to establish that. Um, not until I-, I was pretty well established in Brisbane by that time. So, curiously enough, I, uh, I, the three companies were Brisbane Arts Theatre, they were uh, Brisbane Arts Theatre, uh, Brisbane Repertory Theatre and Twelfth Night Theatre. And... Brisbane Repertory was, was the slickest of them all. They did commercial productions and did them wonderfully well. Uh, Twelfth Night did the more esoteric things. Um, uh, I started with Brisbane Arts Theatre and did a line here and a line there. I, I mean, almost rigid with nerves, uh, first time I'd ever stepped on a stage. But that evolved uh, to the point where I was playing, you know, a decent... I remember the first decent part I played at about I was 17, I guess... Um, was the young man in Streetcar Named Desire, the one who uh, the Blanche kisses, you know. Oh, yeah, the delivery and, boy. Uh, mm. That's right. And um, that was the first abstain. Then they gave me a juve in something. I played juves, which re- I really didn't like, but, of course, you know, a certain height and a certain whatever, and you're going to play that sort of thing. So um, one day I had a call. There was a call from Babette Stevens, who ran Brisbane Repertory Theatre. You've probably heard of Babette, haven't you? Yes, indeed. She was a major, major mover. And she asked, she came looking for me. There was something she saw in what I was doing that appealed to her. And she um, asked me to play with her and with um, uh, Nick Eady's father uh, in The Great Sebastians, which had played, the, the Lunts originally did on Broadway. And I played the evil Czechoslovakian uh, official who was trying to uh, get them slaughtered. And it worked very well. Thereafter, she became my mentor. And I, Babette was a woman who, I, I mean, not only a terrific actress, whose comic timing is, was incredibly good. She was also, she made, she was so British, she made Lady Teasel, Lady, uh, Lady Bracknell sound like a floozy. And <laughs> she took no prisoners. She moved me in directions that I didn't think I was capable of. And for her, I did the Malvolio, which was terrific. I did the cow play, for which I was much too young, but I knew the violin, but it, the, it worked well and gave me all the confidence I needed. And at the same time, I started doing schools broadcasts for um, ABC Radio and a couple of radio plays, a few radio plays which were national. And at 20, I auditioned and became an announcer part-time at radio station 4BH in Brisbane, and then asked if I could do my own programme, which I was doing on Sunday nights, this was before television quite took hold, um, uh, about theatre, doing interview with, interviews with theatre people in Brisbane, um, theatre news, playing recordings and so on, 
And that was successful. And it was at that point when I was 20 that I thought, I have to get out of here and go someplace else to see if I can do this uh, in a bigger field. Yeah. So y- your learning is very much on the job. You're serving an apprenticeship with all of these gigs that you're, you're yeah. starting to get, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I had no, no formal training, obviously, because that was thwarted by my mother. Um, but I, I kept my eyes open and my ears open and learned as I went along. So was, was I, Melbourne your first port of call? It was. Uh, I guess because I was terrified of Sydney. And Melbourne, I had a couple of um, actor friends, an actress called Beres Marshall, um, who'd gone to Melbourne and said, oh, come down, you'll do lots of voiceovers, lots of uh, whatever's available. And I gathered the money together, said goodbye to everyone and went to Melbourne. And the very first day I was there, there was a call... Uh, from uh, ABC Television for me to hold a spear in a production of Macbeth uh, they were doing. I think I, Owen Weingart was playing Macbeth. And very um, cautiously, I carried a spear in Macbeth. But after that, I did radio plays. I did reviews. A lot of radio in Melbourne uh, in the year that I was there. And, and strangely, I, I think of uh, the number... I spent the whole of the 60s singing my little heart out, and I've never been trained as a singer, which is perfectly obvious when you hear me. But I remember the first, the first play I did for uh, Henry, Henry Carr. I'd never sung in my life. Um, it said the character's name was Barney. I think it was a Canadian piece. And it said Barney enters singing. Well, they played the song for me. I learned it. I entered singing. We did the entire first rehearsal, and Henry Cuthbertson came round with his notebook, as, as is his wont in those days, turned the first page, and then said, Mr. Creighton, can you whistle? <laughs> I thought I'm, <laughs> I might have to give up after that. But the next thing I did was a review. And um, then, dear God, every week of my life in the 60s, I was singing something. Well, there's the name of your autobiography, Enter Whistling. <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> Why were you fearful of Sydney? I think because it was a big deal. I mean, Sydney was where I... It was all of the radio pieces that I listened to as a child, my ear glued to the radio for the Lux Radio Theatre and whatever else, they all emanated from Sydney. And um, it was such a big field and such a complex one, I thought, I, a little, you know, the fear, the, the inhibitions, the inferiority. I thought, let me see if I can make it in Melbourne first. So the reason I fi- finished up in Sydney is because I then played... Uh, in Winter Journey with Googie Withers when I was 20. In fact, I had my 21st birthday in, in that company, and Googie and John gave me my 21st birthday party. Wow. And um, they've, the tour finished in Sydney, and I stayed. Um, I was offered work there doing voiceovers, which I did a lot of in those days, and some radio. And um, then I did... Uh, what did I do? Merchant of Venice for ABC Television, a very lavish live production. Um, playing Lorenzo. Lorenzo yeah. Playing Lorenzo, yeah, to uh, Annette Andre's um, uh, Jessica. And that sort of made it, made it work for me. I thought, okay, this is where I'm staying now. And right after that, of course, um, Music Hall was opening in Sydney, and I virtually badgered them into taking me as the villain. It was the only part I wanted to play in East Lynn. Well, they're the and best roles, aren't they? That, sure are. And I was about 20 years too young for it, but that's okay. I'm a little late here and there, some grey in the sideburns. 
And um, it, that really made my name in Sydney theatre. And, of course, ultimately, it led to everything else. Stylistically, I, I guess you're aware of, of melodrama through your interactions with your, your grandfather. Absolutely, absolutely. Some of the play scripts I read in, those, in my early years were melodramas that he'd done, uh, either as an actor or he'd, uh, that, he'd, that he'd directed. Um, so you also begin writing melodramas for, for the, the uh, musical theatre restaurant, Lady Audrey's Secret and How, How the West Was Lost... Yes, Lady Audrey's Secret was very successful. How the West was lost was a spoof on, on westerns, of course. That one I left. I I, um, I played the villain in all of them, and how the I'd written How the West was lost. I think specifically for me and Nolene, because I'd I'd met Nolene Brown by this time, and uh, I dragged her along to the music hall and said, "This is the ideal woman of the world." So we she always played the hip swinging, uh, cigarette smoking woman of the world, and I was the villain and everything. And, of course, Bramston happened while I was rehearsing um, How the West Was Lost. So I either had to leave completely to do the pilot or I'll stick with the other. And I read the pilot scripts for Bramston and thought, oh, dear, this isn't going to work. It's too bold for Australian television and nearly turned it down. Well, tell me, how did you meet Nolene Brown? Because she becomes a a formative... um, uh, Oh, yeah. Partnership, a great friend, but also on stage as well. Nolings, we're still in touch with each other every week. Nolings like flesh and blood to me. We are very close friends. Um, I met her when I left the music hall for a few months to do a review at the Philip Theatre. And it was called What's New? And the critics said not very much, actually. But Noling was in the cast, Maggie Dents was in the cast, um, a lot of good people who are still around. Were, were, uh, Janet Brown, who lives in London now, is in the cast. And at that time, I was obsessed with the work of Nichols and May. Um, great, great comedians, as well as Nichols then becoming a great director and May becoming a great uh, screenwriter and playwright. And most of their comedy was improvised. And I thought, you know, that we could do that. And Nolene and I, we knew as soon as we met that we shared a sense of humour. And better than that, we shared a sense of timing. Uh, and that's something that's, that's built in. It's not something you learn how to do. We started putting a few little pieces together. A friend of mine at radio station 2SM picked up on them, and we broadcast a few of these little bits for uh, just little uh, interim bridges between programmes. Festival Records heard them and then asked us to record a comedy album. It was the first that was ever recorded in Australia. And uh, it was so successful, I think mostly due to the fact that Bramston was on the air at the time. In the first week of release, it outsold the Beatles, Presley and the Rolling Stones. And every track on it was banned by every radio station in Australia because they thought it was too racy. It is so tame by today's standards. Good afternoon, sir. Can I help you? Oh, uh, this is Vogue menswear, isn't it? Yes. But you're, uh, I mean, well, isn't there a male shop assistant here? Oh, no, I'm sorry, they're all out to lunch. I'm all that's here. Oh, <laughs> I see. Well, uh, actually, I wanted a pair of trousers, but I oh, think yes. I'd better come back. Oh, no, 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 the trousers are here. Can I help you? What do you want? What size are you? Well, I take four and a half. Yes, you would. Well, uh... Here's a pair of four and a half. Yes, I think they should be probably just a bit short. We'll have to alter them a bit at the waist and the cuff. Yes. Now, would you like to step into the dressing room? 
Well, uh, I really think I could come back, you know. Oh, I'd... no, don't worry about it. I do it all the time. <laughs> well, here we are. Now then, I'll just, if you'd remove... My jacket, yes, yes, I'll, yes. I'll. Thank you very much. Now I'll just measure My your... arm's caught, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Let me stupid. help you. Yes, thank now, you. Now, your waist. I'll just slip the tape measure round and see. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> you are ticklish, aren't you, sir? <laughs> yes, I see. Yes. yes, you wear <clears throat> your trousers quite low, don't you? Oh, yeah. yes, yes, I do. I think we'll measure <laughs> your outside leg. Yes. Yes. Yes, they are very long, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they are. Yes, I'm sure they'll have to be altered. I see. Now, your calf. Yes. My <sighs> word. <laughs> now, uh, could I measure your inside leg? Oh, well, I, I, I'll hold the tape measure. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. My word. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, do, do you do this all the time? I mean, have you always worked in a menswear store? Oh, no, no, no. Before this, I was in a dress shop. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't catch that. Uh, dress? To the left. Yes, well... There we are. I think you're just about done. Uh, Thank well, you. I can put my jacket on. Yes, yes, you can. But I think if you want these to fit perfectly, I suggest you come back for another fitting. Oh, really? When? Oh, in about five minutes. So a lot of your career has uh, consisted of, of writing, especially for review. Yeah, a great deal. Not so much material as, as music. In those days, I wrote just music, not even the lyrics. Um, I wrote a lot of music. Every other week I was writing music for the Bramston Show. And the thing about writing a, a, a number for review is that it must be instantly recognisable so it doesn't get in the way of the lyrics. It must be something that's merely um, a vehicle for the lyrics. And the, 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 the melody must be familiar enough to make it, make it not obtrude. Polyester, which you have, was a number that was written for a New York review by a writer called Leslie Davison. And Leslie and Forrest, her husband... Uh, Leslie Perrin. Leslie Perrin, yes. Yeah, yeah. I've met Leslie through you. I know you. Yeah. Sadly, both of them gone now, but they were my closest friends in the country and two of my closest in the world. And it happened because um, I was looking through the music submissions in the office one day during the Bramston show, and I read through the melody line of one. I said, this is a terrific number. I said, I want to do this one. And I noted the name was Leslie Davison, and she'd done a lot of reviews. She'd written a lot for the uh, the Monk reviews, the Philip Monk reviews, and um, for the upstairs and the downstairs, and other reviews in New York, and was well known for doing this. So, of course, the first time I went to New York, I met Leslie and Forrest, and they became close, close friends. Um, polyester, I think, was a cute one, and I did that number with Hazel Phillips. Darlings, we really ought to support the wool growers of Australia, slaving away watching their wool bushes or whatever they grow it on. Wear wool. I mean, well, I'm pretty woolly myself. <laughs> Above all, shun all those artificial fibres the wool boards hate so much. I mean, listen to this cautionary tale. Perfectly lovely She had a form divine I knew for sure that her haute couture Was the latest Parisian design How I admired the fabric Wondering what she had on For it wasn't chinchilla In shades of vanilla Or stripes of the sheerest chiffon No, it was ten percent Twenty-two percent oil on, thirty-eight 
Chival with its synthetic fibers. She was young and alive as she felt so chemical. My passes insistent. I was wrinkle resistant. Thought she wore where I pressed her. Polyester. You don't have to iron it. You just wash and wear it. It's 12% nylon, 3.5% nylon, she remarked, with a nylon, I can stretch all I want, for it isn't an anchor, she explained to her date, Dancing faster and faster, she was courting disaster, just like a demon possessed her. It's got wearability, where other clothes lack it, and such versatility, it won't crush when you pack it. Every Tom, Dick, and William, who's done watching her pass, suddenly saw her side slip. As my date made a sly quip, caught my dress in his tie clip, it snagged and alas. It unraveled completely, she was tangoing there. And she cried indiscreetly. I've simply nothing to wear. I didn't mean to divest her, to annoy or molest her. I merely did it to test her. Of course, Barry, you, you gained national prominence in 1964-65 as one of the original stars and writers of The Mavis Bramston Show. Describe to the listener what The Mavis Bramston Show was. It was uh, a topical review show, really. It was derived from the Philip Theatre, except they wanted to, to dwell mostly on political and topical satire. This had never been done in Australia. It was a big hit in England, um, with a show called That Was The Week That Was, which was David Frost and Millicent Martin and Roy Kinnear, a lot of other people like that. And some of whom I got to work with later, David Frost and Roy Kinnear in particular I worked with later. Uh, but they wanted to base it on, on that show. And the obvious choice for it, Carol Ray came from... She was, Carol was a big star in England in the late 40s on film and on stage. Married uh, her husband, where they went to live in South Africa, where he was working at the time, and she gave up the business until she wanted to come to Australia and produce. 
And the first thing she submitted to Channel 7 was an idea that was based on that was the week that was. And Gordon was the one who said Carol should be in it because she was a big star over there. That's how Carol became involved. And I remember I was at the music hall performing one night and suddenly I noticed there was this raucous laugh and it was Gordon Chatham I'd met briefly at that time. And a bunch of other people who were pointed out to me as executives from Channel 7. And of course it was the day after that they asked me if I'd do the Branston pilot as a foil to both Carol and Gordon, sort of someone in the middle. Uh, It was a groundbreaking show because it was braver, I think, than any other show had ever been on television. It was certainly the first of its kind, and it's been copied, I think, mercilessly ever since uh, in similar review-type shows. But at that time, nobody had been as brave as this. And I always applaud Channel 7, a commercial network, for doing this, rather than the supposedly impartial ABC. Um, We parodied some of the commercials that were in, in the commercial breaks between the sketches we were doing. But it was an immense success. And Nolene, of course, I dragged Nolene into playing Mavis Bramston, the very first uh, show. It was supposed to be a no-talent British import. And they stuck her name on the show and brought her from England, then realised how terrible she was, so sent her back. But the, the premise was that nobody had ever had a directive to change the name of the show. So the show, Mavis Bramston, stuck without Mavis Bramston. And Nolene was terrific. She was incredibly funny. And right after this, and we made, Nolene and I then made two albums, and she went off to London to spend, I think, six months or a little longer. And when she came back to Australia, instantly we grabbed her for the Bramston show, and she spent the rest of 65 with us in the Bramston show, which was terrific. It, it was a groundbreaker. I don't think anybody's broken quite as much new ground since uh, the Bramston show. What was Gordon Chater's background? Was he, he an actor? He was, uh, um, he, he was in the Navy, I think, when he came to Australia in, in the mid-40s, after the war, and gradually got into acting, I think, by accident, like a lot of us do. He, uh, um, I don't think he had any formal training, but he, he was a natural, my God. And I've never met a bolder or braver actor in my life than Gordon. He took risks that I would never take in those days. Um, as an actor. He would try something outrageous, and if it worked, we'd keep it. But he was he became like family to me as well, like a, a rather disgruntled uncle on occasion, telling me how to live my life, but that was okay. <laughs> Carol and I are still in touch, of course. Carol and I uh, exchange emails frequently. It was it was like a family. And June Salter, I was very, very close to. It was it was we became, anyone you know what it's like in theatre. Uh, if you spend eight performances a week with, with a bunch of people, you become their family. Like them or not, you become their family. And that's certainly what we were like doing a show weekly for a whole year or more in Bramston. Did the, did the show go to air live? No. We recorded on a Monday. It went on on a Wednesday. Occasionally, if something topical happened in between, we'd be rushed back into the studio on our day off to record something more appropriate. The purpose of, of togetherness, which you probably heard, was to get a topical subject into the song. After we'd done the news items that were the top of the show, and they were all send-up of uh, uh, topical events or or politicians, whatever. Um, But very seldom was it. Nothing was ever really live on the show. Just as well. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) Are you a political animal? I guess you'd have to have a keen interest. I am now. 
I am now. I was, I was not then. I had no idea which side anyone was on or what it all meant. I read the script and looked as though I raised an eyebrow and looked as though I knew all about it. I knew absolutely bugger all about it, frankly. But uh, I, over the years, I've become a very political animal, certainly living in this country. Um, I've even been to you know, anti-Trump protests downtown, you know, placard-carrying activist. <laughs> Gordon Chater, you worked with a couple of times after the show, I believe, especially in production of Corpse. I did. I thought you'd bring that up. Yes. Um, I love that story. Will you tell us about the school matinee? Oh, that's, that's really very... Uh, this is the only time I've ever done anything mean to Gordon in my life, I think. But Gordon, at this time, <laughs> I've got to start out by explaining. In Corpse, um, he very kindly allowed me lead billing over him and that, which I thought was very nice of him. And indeed, I played twins in the show and was constantly meeting myself coming back, you know, doubles and revolving stages. And Gordon at this time had flown in from New York and was vastly overweight and eating and drinking to excess and hated just about everybody at that time. He was mean to everybody. And we all suffered as a result of this. And he always been a maniac for punctuality. Uh, which I applaud now, I mean, so am I, but in those days I was a little less so than he. And I remember one, the first matinee we played in, in Brisbane, I think, before we got moving on the tour, um, they had schools in. The show was supposed to go up at two o'clock, and Gordon was in a grumpy mood for some reason. Um, and I, they came, the company manager came to me and said, we're getting a lot of schools, high school students in, can we hold the curtain? And my mine was the word that counted. And I said, yes, hold it for as long as it needs for them to settle down. Because my, my first scene was in the dark, uh, dressed as Queen Mary, of all people. <laughs> and um, yes, I took an hour and a half of makeup every night. And uh, uh, I said, I want them to be quiet before I do that first scene. And it was just quiet and in the dark. Well, at about two or three minutes past two, Gordon stormed on the stage and said... Why is the curtain not up? We should be going up on time. And I thought, Gordon, I suggested they should hold it until we get the high school students settled in the theatre. He said, any actor worth his salt could hold their attention and stormed off the stage. And I was very offended by this. And uh, the company, Maggie King, who was standing next to me, burst into tears instantly. (laughs) And the company manager came to me at intermission and said, oh, Gordon is really rather contrite. He really didn't mean what he was saying. And I said, that's okay, he's absolutely right. I said, uh, the curtain must go up on time every night. Every night it must go up exactly on time. And the company manager said, but what about the latecomers? I said, simple. You let me do my first scene in the dark and the quiet, and then you bring the latecomers in on Gordon's entrance. So for about three weeks, I did my scene comfortably to a very quiet, attentive audience. The moment I opened the door to admit Gordon, Chaos. Flashlights went on all over the auditorium and people shuffled into seats so no one heard a word of Gordon's opening speech. Uh, After about three weeks of this, I'd I'd been satisfied by it all. Gordon actually apologised a lot later and said he was having a tough time, which he was at that time. Uh, But it's the only time I ever did anything mean to Gordon, I think, in my life because he really was like like family to me and we always treated each other like family. You uh, were, we talked about singing earlier on, um, and you're required to do a lot of singing on the Brampton show. Yes. I've got a piece here called Controversial Documentary. Do you want to yes, do that it, set it up was for a me? Se- 
It was a send-up of the ABC programme, uh, Four Corners, which was very serious, and they all did the thing about, you know, sex and teenagers and drug addiction and all of those things which were considered to be very racy in the 60s. And they, sent, they gave me the lyrics as they did every week. I can't remember who wrote the lyrics for this, and uh, I wrote the music for it. And it was one that I rather liked, even though, you know, my singing is less than, than stellar. Uh, the number, I think, is still very cute. ask about our ratings? Well, they're tops, man, just tops. I'll tell you why we're never flops. We've interviewed a fleshy nude. The reason is elementary. A big bear bust is an absolute must in a controversial documentary. We've had a go at a well-worn pro who's well-known to the gentry. There's always a part for a talkative tart in a controversial documentary. If it's perversion, we can give it. We love to cause a fuss by proving that we're with it. Four corners is square, but not us. It's very clear why we like a queer, even if he's in the penitentiary. Just what they do makes everyone view every controversial documentary. You may have seen our latest expose, Lesbianism in the Brownies. Now we're working on a sequel, Lesbianism in the Boy Scouts. <laughs> Unmarried mothers or their brothers tell of unlawful acts. And then we get the strippers who are anxious to bear all the facts. On seven days and telescope our policies elementary. You'll see what gives how the other half lives on a controversial documentary. Like me, I'm sure you've been endlessly enthralled listening to Barry's story of ascension to Australian stages and television. He is one of the country's comic geniuses and has certainly given us much amusement in various roles over several decades. He surely figures prominently in the artistic landscape of theatre and television in this country, contributing to and influencing the development of satirical comedy and smart entertainments. Join us for the companion episode of this conversation where Barry elaborates on the process of writing and describes extensive periods working in London and the United States. That's in the next episode of Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft and career. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.